This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Anyway, we'll be in uh, Matthew this morning, the first chapter of Matthew uh, is where we'll be reading from. So Matthew chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18 and read through 25. So Matthew 1, verse 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Whenever you find it, would you stand? Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, became a, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife. And did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning. Our Savior, our Lord, the name above all names, the name to which every knee will ultimately bow, every tongue will confess His Lordship. Lord, we're so thankful this morning for Your promise of a Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, and for Your fulfillment of that promise in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that <clears throat> You enable us this morning as, as the Word is proclaimed uh, to focus in on You and all that You've done in our behalf. That we may continue this morning in an attitude of worship for your great grace extended to us. Truly, as Mary proclaimed, uh, you are mighty. You are the mighty God. And you've done great things for us. Father, I ask now that you... Enable me to 
look to You and hear from You and deliver the message You would have delivered. I ask that You grant clarity. And I ask that You open all of our ears to hear what You're saying to Your church today. So that we may grow in grace, be built up, grow in the knowledge of Christ, and so that through it all you, you may be honored and glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And be seated. <clears throat> Amen. We... Um, begin last week what uh, we intend to be a study through the whole book of Matthew, the Gospel. There's nothing like examining uh, the life of Christ, life and ministry of Christ in the flesh. I asked uh, Jordan again yesterday um, as a reminder and uh, just ask, and I'll throw this out to you too as well just for something to think about, why do we celebrate Christmas? Some of you may be thinking, you know, we're here we're looking this morning at Matthew's narrative on the birth of Christ. You may be thinking, well, this is kind of a Christmas message. Well, really, this is a message for, for every day because the Christmas message is a message for every day. It's the gospel. Why do we, why do we celebrate Christmas? And I, I know why our society, or at least I think I do, why our society celebrates it um, I was in the dollar store yesterday, and they've already got a whole section laid out. they got Halloween stuff over here and then Christmas stuff over here. And uh, it's all there already. Um, it's, it's, it's for the world, um, well, sometimes centered around family, but a lot of it is just, it's just commercialized. It's, it's about um, receiving <laughs> and maybe giving. And uh, it's about spending money and making money. And on the better side, as I mentioned, sometimes for some it's, it's, it's about spending family time. But there's a, a real reason behind it all that is far more significant than any of those things. And I might say it's not, as I, I saw uh, on a uh, kid's television show once, it's, it's not a birthday. I mean, that's, that's not the primary significance of it. It's not, it's not, it, it is about a birth, we'll, we'll see that, but, it, but it's not um, a birthday like, you know, we have our birthday. So we, it's not a birthday party, in other words. It's a celebration of the incarnation. Now, that's, that's a word that a lot of us probably don't use all that much, but it's a word we need to know. This is one of those theological terms that we, that we need to know. Every Christian needs to know what the incarnation is about. And, and we have record of it here. We have record of it in Luke. We have record of it in John 1. It's about God Himself becoming flesh. Incarnate. That is, He, he becomes a man. And that's what the celebration of Christmas is really supposed to be about. And it's supposed to remind us of the incarnation of Christ. Because when we, when we think, we have to make this distinction between us and Him, 
when we think in terms of uh, our existence, we, we think of our birthday as the beginning. Now, that's not actually the beginning. The beginning is nine months prior to that. <laughs> but, but we usually, we, we think of the birthday as being the beginning. As a, a friend of mine says, um, when I discovered America, he says, that's how he refers to his birthday. Um, for us, it's the beginning. For Jesus, it's not the beginning. It's the beginning of His humanness. But not the beginning beginning. Because He always was. So, the virgin conception and virgin birth is when the eternal Son of God became man became a human being. So, this is a message this morning about a promise kept. A message about that event. You could call it the miraculous conception and birth of Christ, or um, often uh, it's referred to as the virgin birth. Um, But remember, again, Nine months prior to that is when, when, when the start actually was. So I like to refer to it as the virgin conception. But the virgin conception and birth of Christ, um, first of all, is a historical fact. We're going we're gonna to see that here. This, this portion of Scripture, not long ago, we were, we were discussing, um, I don't even remember what passage we ran at the time, but we were discussing the difference, for example, in poetry and and narrative, and you have both in the Scripture. Well, this is a narrative. Matthew 1 is, is not poetry, it's narrative. He's, he's, he's not giving us a, a symbolism um, you know, to, to uh, make us aware of some, um, some event or some spiritual truth. He's laying out actual events that occurred. This, this is historical record in the form of a narrative, a story. And it's a story about the eternal Son of God becoming man. Now, last week we went through the genealogy and um, we saw the ancestry, humanly speaking, the ancestry of Christ. He was born, again, humanly speaking, He was born a Jew, son of Abraham, son of David, requirements to fulfill... um, the ministry of the Christ. The Christ had to be of the seed of Abraham and of the seed of David. And so we saw that last week. We went down through the genealogy in verses 1 through 17, and we talked about various characters. Sunday night, we talked about skeletons and heroes, you know, skeletons in the closet, and then heroes in the lineage, and they're all there in the lineage of Christ. And today's narrative focuses on what were known to be, thought to be, I have to say that about one of them at least, his parents. Joseph was thought to be the father of, of Jesus. And Mary was his mother. So there are a few characters in this narrative. Joseph, the angel, the angel of the Lord, possibly uh, Gabriel, I'll talk about that in a moment, but it, we don't know that. 
It doesn't tell us that. But an angel of the Lord. And then Mary, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, primarily, I'm going to focus in on uh, Mary and Joseph to start with. Um, but remember, those are, those are the key characters. Joseph, the angel of the Lord, Mary, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and Jesus. But keep this in mind, the main character is Jesus. And this is the focus of Matthew's narrative. The reason he's telling this story is to uh, tell us about the identity of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of a promise. It's a story of a promise kept. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Verse 18, he begins the story. After his, Mary, after his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, here we have already Mary, Joseph, the Holy Spirit. Mary um, was betrothed to Joseph. Again, that's a word that if, if, you, if we weren't familiar with the Bible, that would probably be a word we wouldn't even use. Um, we, we, don't, we don't do this today, really. It's, it's like engagement, but more serious. Uh, they, they would be referred to as man and wife once they were betrothed. Um, and it was a, it was a legal agreement. So the once once you were betrothed, unlike uh, our version, unlike uh, uh, engagement, once you were betrothed, the only way out of that was a formal divorce. Just as though, just as if the marriage had been had been uh, uh, confirmed, consummated, um, there had to be a divorce. So they were betrothed, but not. Married. They hadn't gone through the marriage ceremony yet, um, you know, and, and probably and so so not taking up residence together, and, and the marriage had not been had not been consummated. So it's, it's at this time that Mary's found to be with child. Both of these figures, and again, we don't know this for sure, but just just because we know some things about the uh, culture. Both of these characters, Mary and Joseph, are probably teenagers. Probably teenagers, because it was common, you know, for, for young women to be married around the age of 14, something like that. And Joseph is probably maybe in his late teens. I mean, this, this was common in that era. Uh, we don't know for sure about them, but I'm just throwing that out because I want you to keep in mind, more than likely, these are very young individuals. Now, Joseph here, and I want to kind of focus in on him first. Now, we're, Matthew focuses in more on him, and over in Luke you get uh, uh, sort of uh, Mary's experience. Um, verse 19, Joseph being a just man and not wanting to make a public example was minded to put her away. In other words, divorce her secretly because the assumption here is adultery, right? Because even during the betrothal period, if there was unfaithfulness, it was considered adultery. And actually, they, they, they could be stoned to death. She could be stoned to death. So, um, Joseph, remember, finds out about this. He, they're married, the way it's worded here, Mary was found to be with child during the betrothal period. And he knows that he hasn't been with her 
And so he's thinking divorce. But I want to focus in for a moment on his character and talk a little bit about the integrity of Joseph. Because there's much to learn here from Joseph and from Mary. Um, First of all, he's called a just man. Again, in verse 19. The Scripture, uh, the Holy Spirit, the ultimate author of Scripture, refers to Joseph as a just man. Michael Jenkins, in his commentary on Matthew, says this is the normal use or sense of the of the word righteous in the Old Testament. That is, the idea here is, is the normal uh, idea of the word righteous in the Old Testament, or just. In the New King James here, it's translated just. Joseph was a just man, or a righteous man. And what does that mean? He goes on to define it as, very simple, right behavior according to the law. So we're talking about uh, a practical righteousness here. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. When we talk about the righteousness of Christ, we mean he was perfect. <laughs> when, when we say that Jesus was ju- is just or righteous, he's perfect. He's, he never sinned. He knew no sin. He had no experiential knowledge of sin. But when it says that or talks that way about other individuals in the Scripture, it's meaning by that that this is the general character of their life. They did what was right. Right behavior according to the law. That is, according to Old Testament law, Mosaic law. So Joseph, in other words, was a man of integrity. A very young man already committed to doing the Lord's will. He, it, it wasn't a, a, a show for him. It wasn't a put-on. His, his life was about doing the will of God. This is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. He was a just man, a righteous man. Now, as I said, that's, that word is used often. I'm going to give you some other examples here because, again, as I said, we can learn from these figures and uh, this is God's will for us, that we be righteous. Now, we are made righteous because the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. So as far as our standing with God, every believer is dealt with by God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing you can do to add to that because Christ's righteousness is perfect. We don't, nothing needs to be added to it. But in terms of our daily living in this world, we are called to a life of righteousness in this sense... Right behavior according to the law of God. Or we could say according to the Word of God. That is, we're called to good works, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're called to a life of obedience to the will of God. Now, let me, again, give you some examples here where this is applied to other, um, other people. Zacharias and Elizabeth in Luke 1, verse 6, they were both righteous. These are the parents of John the Baptist. They were both righteous. It's the same word there, dikaios. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? <laughs> it always fascinates me. It's said of them, and you know, Paul says it of himself, blameless, blameless. 
in all the commandments and ordinance of, ordinances of the Lord. So, so they were sinless. No, they weren't sinless. And that's not what it's trying to communicate there. It's just, it's just trying to, again, trying to communicate the fact that their life was given to pleasing God, doing God's will. Paul, when, when the Apostle Paul, uh, who, by the way, referred to himself as the chief among, among sinners, also said of himself that he was blameless in regard to the law. Sounds like a contradiction there, doesn't it? Well, was he blameless in the the law and the keeping of the law, or was he a sinner? Not only a sinner, but the chief of sinners. Well, yes, both are true. He, 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 his life was devoted to the keeping of uh, the ceremonial law before his salvation, but um, he had no true righteousness before God until the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him. And we're talking again here about practical righteousness, the, the, the direction of one's life, living according to the will of God. And Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, like Joseph, a just man. And this is God's will for us as well. Philippians 2. Verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault. Now, if, it'd be great just to, it, it, would be, it would be tremendous if I just never complained again in my life and never disputed with anybody again in a, in a wrong way. But would that make me sinless? No, of course not. So why does Paul say that if you do this, you'll become blameless? Well, again, he's, he's just talking about practical righteousness, living out the will of God in your life so that your life is characterized by pleasing God, by doing God's will, which we could summarize as living for the glory of God and for the benefit of other people. Again, Ephesians 2.14, doing doing all do all things rather without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world this one why it's so important for us to to do this because we live in the middle of a pr- crooked and perverse generation and so we should be exceptions Colossians 1, verse 21. You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Now, there is a, is a promise that this blamelessness will indeed eventually come to pass because God will make it so in the end. We'll never be uh, perfect in this life. But, in the end, Christ will perfect us because when He comes, we'll be changed. We'll be glorified. We'll be presented to God blameless, above reproach in His sight. Interestingly, too, I just wanted to... We we talked uh, uh, 
a couple weeks ago about um, Jesus' conversation with Pilate. <clears throat> one, one account of that is from Matthew, Matthew 27. I just want to read you one verse from there, Matthew 27, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, that is Pilate, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. Now, there the word is used in reference to Jesus. And she, even there, she probably doesn't mean sinless because she doesn't know. Uh, she may, but she may mean that after the dream that she had. <laughs> but she probably doesn't mean that because she doesn't know Christ. But she means he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing worthy of any penalty. And, of course, Pilate knew that and declared that himself several times. So, his wife says, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Just, righteous. Joseph was a just man. He was committed to righteousness, practical righteousness. Secondly, um, and, and this is actually part of that, but he was committed to mercy. I, I find this in, intriguing too. Especially since sometimes we, we, in our experience, the two don't go together. At least not if, not if we're... Uh, well, think about the Pharisees for a minute. Think about a, a self-righteous, self-serving kind of righteousness. Now, Jesus dealt with that constantly with the Pharisees. And they put on a pretense of righteousness that was totally void of mercy. I mean, sometimes when the, when the letter of the law seemed to work in their favor, they would want to carry it out to the T, as long as it was at the expense of someone else. And Jesus condemned them for that. He said, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Well, Joseph, and of course this is long before uh, that, some 30 years before that, Joseph seems to know this. And he, so, all the while, he's, he's trying to live out the righteousness of God in this particular situation, and yet, at the same time, be merciful. And remember, we're, we're defining here the righteousness of God as, as living according to the law. So, what does the law say? Your, your, your wife, or in this case, your, your betrothed wife, commits adultery. The law is you divorce her. That's the law. And again, she can be penalized with uh, death. Look at verse 19 again. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He's, he's, he's going to, at least his intentions are here to divorce her because this is what the law calls for. He's, he's probably very confused, but he's, he's assuming here that she's guilty of adultery, so he's going to have to go through the process of divorce. But in mercy, because he doesn't want to shame her, he decides to do it privately. Mercy. Mercy. And, uh, as we'll see, 
again, remember these these are probably very very young couple. He's devoted to sexual purity. They they have not violated that up to this point. And even after the Lord reveals to him what's going on, uh, they do not come together until after Jesus is born. So here's, here's a young man committed to righteousness. Committed to living according to the revealed will of God. And then there's Mary. The submission of Mary is... Uh, it's amazing, and that's why I wanted to read earlier the uh, the Song of Mary, the, the uh, traditionally called the Magnificat, where she she uh, sings the praises of God. And upon the angel's announcement of these things, you know, she says, "Be it unto your handmaid, according to your word." Totally submitted. Again, lessons to be learned from Mary. In fact, we're told in Luke 1, 28 and 30 that she is favored by the Lord. Let me just go to Luke for a moment here. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? She was chosen to bear the Christ child, an obvious sign of God's favor. Luke 1, 28 Having come in, the angel said to her, and this is Gabriel in this account, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. And then in verse 30, he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He explains to her the situation, and in verse 38, here's her response, Behold behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And by the way, I, I mentioned earlier that it's possible that the uh, angel in Matthew 1 is Gabriel. We don't know that for sure. But it was Gabriel who appeared to Zacharias foretelling the birth of John the Baptist and uh, indirectly foretelling the birth of Christ. And it was Gabriel who appeared to Mary um, foretelling the birth of Christ here. And then Mary um, gives a song that we read earlier, which is amazing, amazing expression of praise. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. She is totally submitted here to God's will and overcome with joy at this announcement. Astounded that she would be chosen um, to bear the Christ child. And then we come to the main character in this narrative, and that is Jesus. Of course, all of these play a part. That's why we're mentioning them. Joseph, Mary, the angel of the Lord who is sent to make the announcement. The Holy Spirit who does the actual work, and we're not told specifically how, but this is a miraculous 
conception. As a matter of fact, if I can uh, refer to Luke again here, Gabriel tells Mary, um, she, she asks, first of all, in verse 34, how can this be since I do not know a man? The angel has told her, you're going to bear a son. And she says, how can this be since I do not know a man? That doesn't mean that uh, you know she lived a sheltered life and she never met a man. In fact, she's already betrothed to Joseph. It means that she has never, ever engaged in sexual intercourse with a man. She is a virgin. Now, I'm going to make a little bit of a, of a, put a little bit of emphasis on this because this, this is uh, often denied in our day. And I know that probably no one in this room that denies it, but nevertheless, uh, it, it is a, a great truth of the Bible. So I, so I just want to consider some things here. This, again, is the miraculous conception of our Lord. It is central to the gospel because Jesus was not, He was a man, but He's not merely a man. If Mary were His mother and Joseph were His biological father, He was merely a man. And I want to show you that the Bible is clear that that is not the case and that the virgin birth or the virgin conception is indeed true. It's not myth, it's historical fact. It is the work of God, of whom, the angel says, uh, with whom uh, all things shall be possible. First of all, in verse Luke one thirty-five, the angel answers Mary. She says, how can these things be? And the angel answers her and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 37, for with God nothing will be impossible. It's interesting in verse 35, the similarity of the language here concerning the Holy Spirit, the language here and the language in Genesis 1 where He hovers over the face of the deep. Doing a miraculous work. It's the, it's the power of God at work. It's not explainable, and this is the problem you get into. When, when you look at the, the miracles of the Bible and you try to explain them in some natural way, there's always going to be a problem there. They are, by definition, miracles. They're, they're, they cannot be explained in a natural way. This is, this, this is at the heart, I think, of the, of the controversy we have concerning evolution and creation. Creation is a miracle. Again, recorded in Genesis 1. Similar language here. The Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. He said, light be. And there it was. There was no natural, what we would term a natural process. And people try to say things like, well, uh, not, you know, if, if God just created the sun, bam, you know, and it's, it's what is it, 93 million miles away from the earth. You know, and then there are other stars that are just light years away from the earth. And it, and it takes, depending on which one you're talking about, it takes so many thousand million years for the light to reach from there to the earth. And they're saying if God just created them, boom, set them out there, we wouldn't even have the light yet if the earth is really not 6,000 years old. So we wouldn't even be able to see them yet. Well, not if He 
created them and the flow of light from there to here. <laughs> what I'm saying is, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. John MacArthur uses a great illustration in regard to that debate. He says, you know, if you, if you could have brought all the scientists and doctors in and examined Lazarus after Jesus raised him from the dead, you could have, I mean, just gone over him with a fine-tooth comb. You could have learned a lot of things about his present condition. You know, there he is alive and just like any one of us getting an examination. You could have learned a lot of things about him at that moment. But it would have told you nothing about how he came back to life. Because that was a miracle. And this is what they're doing with creation. They're examining things in their present state. And it really is fascinating the depths of the knowledge man is able to gain by those kinds of examinations. But it tells you nothing about how they came into being. Because it was a miracle. And likewise, this is a miracle. A virgin conception and virgin birth. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just, in reference to this, show you a couple of passages here. <clears throat> because uh, one, of the, one of the... It really shouldn't be a point of debate, but it is. One, one of the uh, most common arguments against the virgin birth is that the term virgin here doesn't necessarily mean virgin. That's, that's true. The, the Greek term parthenos um, can just mean young lady. It's true also of the Hebrew term used in uh, Isaiah 7.14. Although, I think if you look at probably every case that <clears throat> the Greek term is used in the New Testament, it's, it's referring to a virgin. But it's, it's true that it, it can just mean young lady. So, for example, you, Matthew 1.23, they read, Behold, and this is a quote from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And so the, the, uh, they argue, those who are opposed to uh, the scriptural account, say, well, you, that just means a young girl. Now, the translators use the word virgin, but... The Greek word can just mean a young girl. So it, it, it's just saying that a young girl is going to become pregnant and bear a child. And there's, believe it or not, big debate over that. Well, let's just look at some of the, a couple of the surrounding statements here. Let's go back to verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And by the way, I saw a whole show on that one time. On, it was on the History Channel or something. <laughs> and that was their whole, whole argument, you know, that this term virgin doesn't mean virgin. Anyway, look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After His mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So, regardless of what kind of definition you can give to the term virgin down in verse 23... Matthew is clear in verse 18 that it was before they came together. That's a euphemism, you know, for 
sexual intercourse. Before they came together, she was found with child. Verse 25, just a little further down, end of the chapter. Or verse 24, let me start there, pick up the beginning of the sentence. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. Now, that's, that's crystal clear, isn't it? Before they came together, and he did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son. And you remember her response in Luke to the angel? She said, how can these things be, seeing I know not a man? And she's using the word know the same way that uh, it's being used here, meaning intimate contact, intimate relationship. Not, not just meaning, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't know any men out there, but she means I haven't been in an intimate relationship with any man. So how in the world can I conceive a child? What I'm saying is the, the Scripture is crystal clear that she was a virgin. The conception of Christ was a divine miracle. It's the work of God. The Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary Creating life in her, placing life in her, should say, and that life is the eternal Son of God, who became flesh. He became a man. Now Matthew tells us, and I want to go back to verse twenty-three or verse twenty-two rather. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So, what Matthew is saying, all of these things that I'm telling you are to fulfill what the prophet said 700 some odd years ago. To fulfill a promise from God. Verse 21, She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves, what the word means. Savior. God saves. She will bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, or Savior. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And I want to talk more about that tonight. He will save his people from their sins. So, in other words, you put that together with Isaiah's prophecy God promised a Savior. And what Matthew is saying is this is the fulfillment of that promise. God promised a Savior because none of us are righteous in the ultimate sense. We can be and should be righteous in the sense that Joseph was declared righteous. He was a, he was a just man, committed to doing right, in other words. Committed to living according to the revealed Word of God. That's how He lived out His life. That's how every one of us should live out our lives. But ultimately, we try our hardest at that. And we come up short. 
we come up short. We're, we're, never, we're never able to achieve righteousness before God. Not before we're saved and not after we're saved. We're in need of what, what theologians have called an alien righteousness. That just mean, it doesn't mean from you know, Mars or you know, sector 22, 34, 18 or whatever. It, it means out, something from outside of us. Because we have no inherent righteousness. We, we have nothing, and I, and I really mean no thing, that we can bring before God and say, here, God, you'll, you'll find this pleasing. Look at what I did today. In fact, I would, I would go so far as to say you can't point at one nanosecond of your life and say, there, there was one moment there that I kept the law of God. I was pure. Oh, sure, I blew it a split second later. But for that, for that one teeny tiny nanosecond, I had no sin. Can't even say that. Because just like we talked about Wednesday night, the, the sin is in us. It's indwelling sin. It's part of us. And there's no delivering ourselves from it. So God promises a Savior. A deliverer. You can't deliver yourself, so I'll send you one who will deliver you. And this is the news to Joseph, to Mary. This is that child. She will bring forth a son, call his name Jesus. God saves. It's the, it's the Hebrew, uh, Yahshua. Joshua is, is, was his actual, actual name. Uh, Joshua is our version of it. Hebrew, Hebrew name, Yahshua. Call His name Yahshua. God saves. So His very name is going to declare that truth. The, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Just by speaking that name, that truth is communicated. That you cannot help yourself. You're dependent on the Lord. The Lord saves. In one sense, it's a condemnation because it, it expresses that truth to us that we cannot help ourselves. But in another sense, it is such good news, isn't it? Because if we can come to terms with the first fact, you know, I can't, I can't help myself. I have nothing to offer God. Then isn't it great that God is declaring, I will save. The Lord save. There is salvation. It's just that it's only through the Lord. There's no other way. But there is salvation. The Lord saves. So you will call His name Jesus. Why? Because He will save His people from their sins. This is a little different twist. I mean, they've been waiting all these centuries for a Messiah, Deliverer. Of course, they've got... Their concept of deliverance, for the most part, was a little bit different. At least for a lot of them, they weren't thinking so much about deliverance from sins. They were thinking about deliverance from circumstances. You know, in this case, deliverance from the Romans, that kind of thing. And he doesn't say, call him Savior because he'll, he'll deliver you from all political oppression. He'll, he'll deliver you from poverty. 
He'll deliver you from all persecution and affliction. He doesn't say that. It's actually, again, it's, it's better news. He'll deliver you from your sins. That's what separates you from God, your sins. And this one, Jesus, will remove that problem. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled. That is, it's the fulfillment of this promise. Isaiah 7.14, verse 23 here. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The virgin conception and virgin birth is essential to the gospel message. Because if Joseph was Jesus' father biologically, then it, then it cannot be said of Jesus, God with us. And this is the promise God is fulfilling. Promise of old. I will will dwell among you. I will walk among you. You will be My people and I will be your God. God with us. Matthew's saying, He's here. He's here. He is arriving. His name is Jesus. God saves. And He'll be called Emmanuel. God with us. Because He's not only the Son of Mary. He's the Son of God. The eternal Son of God incarnate in the flesh. Would you stand? This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.